بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور انفسنا ومن سيئات اعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له واشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له واشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله اللهم اما بعد فان احسن الكلام كلام الله وخير الهدى هدى محمد صلى الله عليه وسلم وان شر الامور محدثاتها وكل محدثه بدعه وكل بدعه ضلاله وكل ضلاله في النار so this is uh, lesson number 8 in our series on the uh, wisdoms behind the commands and prohibitions in the sharia and in the past uh, two lessons we've been taking some statements from sheikh al-islam ibn taymiyyah rahimahullah just to benefit from his insights into this topic and also to seal to end the series uh, with his uh, insights so the quotations that we've been reading through uh, relate to the first of the five necessities which is the religion sound religion and how the sharia uh, ensures or guarantees that sound religion first of all it exists meaning in the hearts and the minds and and, and the bodies and also that it is preserved and it remains and ibn taymiyyah mentioned uh, different aspects of this or different illustrations of this for example how allah azza wa jal through his sharia how he inculcates love in the hearts of his believing servants and this is a way of establishing his religion in the hearts first of all and keeping that attachment to his religion likewise he gave an illustration of just the issue of takbir when we declare allah's greatness and the various scenarios and situations in which takbir is made all of which illustrate how in those scenarios and situations the tawhid of allah azza is being rooted or firmly established in the hearts of his believing uh, servants so he gave some other illustrations of that as well and all of that was from the angle of uh, we said wujud from the angle of making the religion to have an actual real tangible existence right because the law always works from two angles whatever it's trying to achieve first of all it has to have laws to bring it into existence then it has to have laws in order to prevent it from going into non-existence this is how law operates so these were some of the angles from which uh, the sharia establishes the religion has a, a real tangible existence in the hearts of the people and in their practice and implementation and then in the previous lesson we looked at how uh, islam prevents the non-existence of sound religion and this we did by again just looking at some illustrations there are many many uh, ways we can look at it but we looked at some illustrations of this one of those was looking at looking at how uh, the sharia warns against arriya and shirk it warns against showing off showing off and associating partners with allah azza wa jal so uh, it We, we spoke about sincerity to Allah, al-ikhlas, 
which is at the root of the religion, it is the foundation of the religion, to do deeds sincerely and purely for the sake of Allah Azawajal. And when people try to uh, show off or do things to be heard of or to be seen for fame, for repute, this really is, it, it, it makes the religion to be non-existent. Because this violates the very, very foundation of religion. So from the angle of it prohibiting severely from arriya, which is showing off, and shirk, and all of those things which play with the person's you know, motives and intentions, this is one of the ways that we can see the sharia has made sure that the religion does not cease to exist. Right? By you know, keeping these warnings and these injunctions and warnings that a person's deeds will be vain, will be lost, will be fruitless, and so on and so forth. Also from the manifestations that we spoke as to how Islam preserves itself, is by waging war against the murtaddin, the murtaddin, those who are the, you know, the first of all the apostates, and those who uh, refuse to abide by the well-known obligations, such as, you know, fasting, giving zakah, establishing the prayer. So people who withhold from these affairs, then the state or the government has the right to, you know, um, to, um, to, to fight them and to impose that upon them. And this again is to ensure that, you know, Islam does not cease to exist. Because when people start... Uh, abandoning the prayer, abandoning the zakah, abandoning these clear open obligations, it means the non-existence of the religion. We then moved on from this and spoke about the issue of reviling the messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And we mentioned how when people revile the messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi and uh, abuse him and revile him, this is tantamount to waging a war. It is muharaba. It is waging war. And we said that sometimes the tongue can do more damage than the hand. The power of the tongue is greater than the power of the hand. And by way of revilement and belittling the messenger of Allah basically a person is undermining the entire religion because the message has been conveyed through him. So we looked at some angles why this is the case and you know uh, some of the angles uh, of this and so therefore the one and we looked at the ruling of the one who reviles the messenger of Allah sallam that it is automatic uh, disbelief and likewise even a non-muslim who does so who reviles the messenger of Allah sallam in a you know whilst he's living in a in a muslim country uh, the, the same ruling applies to him as well uh, and this is again from the angle of the preservation of the of the religion. Um, finally, we looked at how there were some very uh, extremely deviant sects who had beliefs that entail kufr or disbelief, such as, for example, the ittihadiyah. The ittihadiyah are those who believe that Allah Zawajal can unite physically with individuals within His creation and and merge with them, like. The Christians claim with Isa al-Islam, for example. This, there were some people who basically, they, they were really hypocrites and disbelievers, but they outwardly entered into Islam, and then they began to promote these heretical uh, beliefs. So, likewise we see 
that the Sharia of Islam allows the Muslims to refute these people and also to um, ensure that they are exposed and also make sure that the you know even those who defend them and ally with them and support them that even they, even those people should be should be addressed and should be reprimanded all of this is from the angle of ensuring that islam is not corrupted and it does not cease to cease to exist we're going to continue now inshallah this is where we're starting lesson number 8 and continue in the same way to see another aspect which is how islam has come with a warning at tahdhir min al ibtida' wa muharabat al mubtadi'in how islam has come to warn against innovations and to wage a war against those who innovate into the deen of islam if we reflect upon how the jews and how the christians went astray they went astray because they began to introduce new affairs, novelties, innovations into their religion. Whether in terms of beliefs, whether in terms of acts of worship, or whether distorting their law, playing around with their law. right? In this manner, they altered their religion, and they distorted their religion. So because the Qur'an is the final revelation, and Islam the Islam brought by Muhammad sallam is a completion of the Islam of all of the you know previous uh, prophets they brought a generalized Islam but the Islam of the messenger of Allah sallam is is a specific uh, Islam and it is a complete Islam so for that reason we see that uh, so what the sharia has brought and we see this clearly in the ayat of the Quran and likewise in, in many ahadith of the messenger of Allah sallam a clear warning against newly introduced affairs. And a newly introduced affair is something which opposes the, the book, opposes the sunnah, opposes the consensus of the Muslims, whether it is a it is a belief or it is an act of worship. And it is something which Allah has not legislated and you know there's no evidence for it, neither in a general sense nor in a specific sense. And by way of example, some of the innovated statements in Islam are the statements of the Khawarij, those who claim that a Muslim becomes a disbeliever just by committing a major sin. This is false. And this statement was not known, it's not part of Islam, but they introduced this statement into Islam. Likewise, the statement of the Rafida, the Rafida, the, the, the Shia, who claim the Qur'an is incomplete or who revile the companions of the Messenger of Allah even though the Qur'an praises them, this is an innovation into Islam that brings harm to Islam. Or whether it is the Qadariya or the Jahmiya and so on and so forth. All of these are beliefs. And as for acts of worship, for example, you see there are those who believe in singing. They believe that you can sing in order to praise the Messenger of Allah or they celebrate the birthday, the birthdays or the birthday of the Messenger of Allah Or they might allow even dancing as a form of worship, like you see with the with the Sufis. All of these are things which are introduced into Islam. So whether in terms of beliefs or whether in terms of actions. And from the important affairs that Sheikh Al-Islam Ibn Taymiyyah explains 
as occurs in his Majmul Fatawa in one of the volumes, is it is explains that bid'ah things which are innovated into Islam, they they are they are they are neither um, absolutely true from every single angle, nor are they absolute falsehood from every single angle. Because if that was the case, if 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 bid'ah was falsehood from every single angle then everybody would know of its misguidance. But rather what is always the case is that there appears to be something of truth in that innovation, but in its form or its details or in the reason behind it, from these angles it does not agree with the the sharia. This is the nature of innovation. It is never always absolute complete falsehood from every single angle otherwise nobody would would nobody would uh, see it to be misguidance no would be no one would be misguided by it so he says wal bid'ah la takunu haqqan mahdan idh law kanat kadhalik lakanat mashru'ah bid'ah is never pure truth because if it had been the case it would have been legislated the sharia would have legislated if it was pure truth وَلَا تَكُونُ مَسْلَحَتُهَا رَاجِحَةٌ عَلَى مَفْسِدَتِهَا مَفْسِدَتِهَا إِذْ لَوْ كَانَتْ كَذَلِكَ لَكَانَتْ مَشْرُوعًا And likewise, the benefit, the benefit in this innovation is, does not overwhelm its harm. Does not overwhelm its harm. Because if that had been the case, then again the Sharia would have, would have legislated it. Meaning that if in innovation there was more benefit than there was harm, then the Sharia would have actually legislated it. Then he continues to say that "Wala takunu batilan, bahdan, la hakafih." If law kanat kadalik, la mashtabahat ala ahadin, wa inna ma yakunu fiha baadul hak wa baadul batil. And likewise, it would not have been complete falsehood without having any truth in it. Because if that had been the case, then no one would have ever been confused by this innovation. But rather, innovation is such that it has something of truth and something of falsehood. So this is the nature of bid'ah, the nature of innovation in the religion. And you can see how easy it is for a person to fall into innovation, just we can take a simple uh, example. Uh, people who celebrate the birthday of the Prophet ﷺ, as we find among the Sufis, we see that this emanates first of all from love, a love for the Messenger of Allah ﷺ. But as we know from the principles in our religion, love on its own does not constitute worship. Right? This is how the Christians went astray. They thought that everything is just love. And that compliance with the law and compliance with the actual teachings of Jesus, of Isa alayhi salam, that this is of no effect. Well, this is false. Not only do you have to have love for Allah and His Messenger, but you also have to, you also have to comply with, with the law. You have to have compliance with the law. So, uh, you have to comply with the law. So, 
when these people allow this love to be unchecked, then they will start doing things which they believe to be respect and veneration of the Messenger of Allah, which he him, but which he himself did not legislate. Right? So, um, this shows that, uh, as we discussed previously as well, that in Islam, for a deed to be accepted, it has to be sincere first and foremost. And secondly, it has to comply with the sunnah. Without these two conditions, no deed is acceptable to Allah Azza wa Jal. And this also is from those ways and means which ensure the preservation of the religion. The preservation of the, of, of the religion. This is this contrasts with the Christians, because the Christians believe it's all about just love, and that's it, and no compliance with the law. And with the Yahud, with the Jews, you see it's something else. What they believe, they believe that the law is of utmost importance. And what they mean by this is just to observe the law. What happens in the heart is of no effect. It's just observances. It's all outward. Right? There's no like sincerity and you know mahabba and raja like love, hope in Allah Azawajal. It's just rigidly adhering to the law. Right? So this theirs is devoid of the actions of the heart and the Christians is exaggeration in the actions of the heart. In both of these ways, the deen is lost. With the Christians, the law is lost. With the Jews, the, the, the hearts become hard. Because the actions of the heart, there's no, there's no role for them. It's just outwardly making observances, rigidly. Right? This is what they mean by the supremacy of the law. This is wrong. But Islam came with, as, as we know that these affairs, when we discuss when is an action acceptable to Allah, it has to be sincerely for His sake, it has to be done out of love and hope and fear. And also it has to um, be done in compliance with the sunnah. In compliance with the sunnah of Allah's Messenger Wasallam. So all of this in itself shows how Islam preserves, preserves itself. By making clear these, these affairs as to how and when actions are acceptable to Allah. Shaykh al-Islam goes on to explain... Another important point, which is that sometimes uh, some people might achieve certain things or certain benefits, but then they will ascribe them to, for example, when they went to a grave, they visited a grave, for example. And as a result of visiting the grave, their illness got cured. Or, they were barren, could not have any children, and they had a child. And, um, so therefore what will happen is people start attributing effects to causes which are wrong. Which are wrong, right? Not every, for example, um, if you steal, it's a way of acquiring wealth. It works, it actually works. But is that lawful? Is it lawful in the Sharia? No, it's not. Likewise, magic can have certain effects. It can produce certain effects. But is it lawful in the Sharia to, to employ and use magic? And the answer is, is no, it's haram. So the point being that, that it is not the case that every cause that leads to an effect 
is automatically halal. It's not correct. And sometimes people believe in uh, causes being tied to effects when they are just mere coincidence. So for example, a person you know, uh, has an illness and he goes to visit a grave of a, of a wali and he makes dua or he gives food. And then just by the qadr of Allah Azawajal, it just happened that Allah decreed that person's illness to be, to be removed. So this person will now wrongly link the visit to the grave to the curing of his illness. And this is incorrect. This is incorrect. So we have to ensure that we have to ensure that fulfilling your needs um, just because you found a way to fulfill your needs does not mean that that way is actually legislated. The only things which are legislated are those things whose maslaha whose benefit overwhelm their mafsada, overwhelm their harm. And as for when something, it's, you know, it's, 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 uh, harm overwhelms its benefit, then it can never ever be legislated because it does not have any, uh, it doesn't have any benefit. This is how we know automatically that every innovation is misguidance and it is harmful. This is how we automatically know. Because if it, if it if it had some benefit in it, benefit in it, then Allah would have legislated it. If celebrating the birthday of the prophets was of benefit, He would have legislated it, would not have uh, neglected it. And the same goes for every other type of innovation. So we know automatically that because the messengers were sent to uh, bring about the benefits and to complete them and to remove the harms and to limit them then we know that whatever Allah has not legislated, then it cannot be beneficial. And obviously, therefore, it is wrong to to, you know, to act upon it. So then Ibn Taymi says, جَمِيعُ الْمُبْتَدَعَاتِ لَا بُدَّ أَن تَسْتَمِلْ عَلَى شَرٍ All innovated things, it is necessary, it is, it is the case, necessarily, that they comprise overwhelming evil. عَلَى مَا فِيهَا مِنَ الْخَيْرِ Despite whatever good, the amount of good that they may contain. Because if the good in them was overwhelming, the Sharia would not have neglected them. So therefore, we, just by the mere fact that they are innovations, فَنَحْنُ نَسْتَدِلُّ بِكَوْنِهَا بِدْعَ عَلَى أَنَّ إِثْمَهَا أَكْبَرُ مِنْ نَفِئَهَا So just by them being innovations, this in itself is evidence to us, that the sin and the harm in them is greater than the benefit in them. And this is what necessitates them being prohibited in the Sharia. Then there is also a statement from Shaykh al-Islam where he says, أَنَا أَعْلَمُ كُلَّ بِدْعَةٍ حَدَثَتْ فِي الْإِسْلَامِ وَأَوَّلُ مَنْ ابْتَدَعَهَا وَمَا كَانَ سَبَبْ ابْتِدَائِهَا He said, I know every innovation that entered into Islam, and I know the first person to enter that innovation, and I know what the reason was for that innovation. It's what Ibn Taymiyyah said, because as we as we mentioned as we've mentioned before, uh, Ibn Taymiyyah lived in a time uh, when a tremendous amount of evil had descended upon the Muslim nation, and that's because all of the the innovations which appeared in the centuries earlier 
starting from the first century, then the second century, then the third century. So in the first century, there was the bid'ahs of the Khawarij, the Shia, the Rafida, the Qadriya, the Murjia. In the second century, this is when Tasawwuf began to appear, the, like the beginnings of the Sufism and innovations in worship and belief, the beginnings of Ilmul Kalam and philosophy, and the beginnings of many, many things which, which, and as they progressed in the centuries, they, they, you know, there was innovations and somebody else refuting an innovation with another innovation. And then, you know, the, 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 the tremendous amount of innovation appeared. So Ibn Taymiyyah from his study of the books of the Salaf and study of history, he was mani- he managed to map out every single innovation. Who was the one who spoke of it? Why did he speak uh, with it? And so on and so forth. So this is one of the... We see that in Islam, our scholars, the scholars of Ahl-Sunati wal-Jama'ah, unlike the Jews, unlike the Christians, they were able to separate out the innovations from what Allah revealed to His Messenger sallallahu so all of this discussion now leads us to the some of the ways and means that we find in the Sharia that prevents Islam from being completely lost, as happened to the Deen of the Yahud and the Deen of the Nasara, the Jew, Jews and the Christians. So he will give a number of illustrations, right? Some of the Islamic rulings, and you'll see the perfection of the Sharia and the wisdom of Allah Azawajal in these affairs. So the first example relates to the ruling on backbiting. Hukmul ghibah. Backbiting, which is when you speak about another person behind his back. And he was asked about backbiting, Ibn Taymiyyah, in one of his uh, fatawa. So he said, he was asked about the ruling, and he said, uh, an individual can be mentioned uh, with respect to the evil that is with him in numerous scenarios. Right? So Islamically, we are allowed to backbite a person in a number of specific situations. And he says, from them, First one is where a, a, a person is giving advice to other Muslims, either in their religion or in their worldly affairs. So for example, included within this would be, a man is advised with respect to the one who he has dealings with. Right? You have a dealing with another person, and someone else may advise you about that person. Be careful of this person because of this, this, and this, and this. Or a person who entrusts his affairs to another person, right? So you delegate your affairs to another person, maybe he might not be trustworthy, honest. Then another Muslim is permitted to come to you and backbite that person to give you advice in your worldly affairs. This is another scenario. And likewise, a person whom one might use as a witness, he might not be a reliable witness. You can come and tell that person and speak against that witness that this person, his memory is bad or his intentions are not good and so on and so forth. And so on and so forth. And, you know, things of this nature. So he says, um, he says, uh, if this maslaha, if this giving advice is something permitted, in these unique specific situations, then how much more so when it involves 
the rights of the Muslims in general. All of these are very specific, unique situations that involve an individual. So if backbiting is permissible in these specific scenarios, then how much more so when it comes to an affair or issues which affect the generality of the Muslims. So there's no doubt that giving advice in these type of scenarios is even greater. So he says, when the issue is like this, when the issue is like this, then giving advice in the affairs of the religion specifically is wajib. Because the affairs of the religion affect everybody. So he says, for example, the narrators of hadith, we know historically, the narrators of hadith, those who conveyed the sunnah of the messenger of Allah we saw that people that they were spoken against, if they made mistakes, if they had bad memory, if, you know, if, if, they, if they simply erred in narrating, or if they deliberately told lies, they were spoken against. The Muslims never remained silent. And likewise, like the heads of innovation, those people who spoke with statements that opposed the book and the sunnah, or who enacted acts of worship which opposed the book and the sunnah. For indeed, explaining their condition and warning the ummah from them is wajib by unanimous agreement of the Muslims. And until it was said to Imam Ahmed bin Hanbal, a man he fasts and he prays and he makes i'tikaf, is this better to you than that he speaks about the people of innovation? So Imam Ahmed said, when he stands and when he prays and when he makes i'tikaf in the, in the mosque, then this benefit is for himself. He's only benefiting himself. But when he speaks, وَإِذَا تَكَلَّمَ فِي أَهْلِ الْبِدَعِ فَإِنَّمَا هُوَ لِلْمُسْلِمِينَ هذا أفضل. But when he speaks about the people of innovation, then this is for the benefit of the Muslims. This is better, this is superior. So Ibn Taymiyyah says that Imam Ahmed explained that the benefit of this action is for the benefit of the generality of the Muslims in their religion and it is from min jinsil jihad fi sabilillah. It is considered to be one of the types of jihad in the path of Allah Azawajal. Because tathiru sabilillah wa dinihi wa minhajihi wa shir'atih to purify the path of Allah and His religion and His way, His methodology and His legislation and to repel the transgression of these people and their enmity and their, their transgression. It is Wajib by kifaya, Meaning that there has to always be a group amongst the Muslims who are engaged in this preoccupation of pointing out the people of innovation, the people of deviance, the people of misguidance. There has to be, it is wajib upon the whole ummah that there is a group amongst them who are always engaged in this activity. Because he says, had it not been for this, had it not been for the fact that Allah Azawajal has you know, raised and appointed certain people for doing this, for repelling the harm of those people, then the religion would have been corrupt. And the harm of that corruption would be greater than the enemy, the enemy 
from the people of war, them taking control over your land. Why is this? Because when a people take control over your land, for example, um, we know historically that the Mongols took over many of the Muslim lands from one side, and the Crusaders came from the other side and they took control of you know many of the Muslim lands. Um, when they take over land, as Ibn Tim explains, they do not really corrupt the hearts of the people because the hearts are already averse to them. They already know that these are disbelievers, these are, you know, uh, they have enmity towards us and the hearts are naturally, they, they, they hate them and they are averse to them. So how then are they going to be affected by them in affairs of religion? They're not. At most, all they're going to do is lose some land, lose their property, lose their wealth, but the hearts will remain intact upon Islam. However, uh, as for those people, meaning the people of innovation, then these people, they corrupt the hearts from the very beginning. Why? Because what do they come to you with? They come to you with some deviation, some misguidance, some heretical belief, which they convince you that, that this is from Islam, that this is what the Sahaba were upon, that this is the understanding of the Qur'an. They put this into your hearts and, and mind, and this causes corruption to the religion, right? Which is far worse than corruption just to the land, or to property, or to wealth, and so on and so forth. So Ibn Taymiyyah continues and he says, once we understand this, the religion, for the religion to remain, it requires two things. It requires Al-Kitab Al-Hadi, a book that guides, was Saifun Nasir, and a sword that supports and assists. This is how the religion remains upright and strong. He says, Wal-Kitab al Asal. The book is the foundation. The book is the foundation. This is why when at the beginning Allah sent His Messenger, He revealed the book to him. Because the asal is the book that contains the guidance. And he remained in Makkah. He was not commanded with the safe, with the sword, until he emigrated and then he had helpers uh, to aid him. Then he says, as for the enemies of the religion, they are of two types. First of all, Al-Kuffar wal munafiqeen The disbelievers and the hypocrites. And Allah has ordered His Prophet to uh, fight against both of these, both of these groups. He said, Jahid al-Kuffar wal munafiqeen wa'gulud alayhim. That strive against the Kuffar and the munafiqeen and be stern against them. As we see in Surah Al-Tawbah. Surah 9, verse number 73. He says, when we have a people who are hypocrites, now he's speaking specifically about hypocrites, and these hypocrites, they innovate, innovations into Islam, which oppose the book, and then they deceive the people with these innovations. And these innovations are not explained to the people, then the book itself will be corrupted. That the affair of the book will be will be corrupted, and the religion will be altered. Right. So here now, look at the categories. We have the open disbelievers, open kuffar. They are very open in, for example, you know, attacking 
the Qur'an, attacking Islam, attacking the Messenger of Allah Sallam, openly announcing their disbelief, is very, very clear and very, very apparent. Right? The lines are very clearly drawn. Then you have the hypocrites, which is another category. So what these hypocrites do, and historically this is what happened, there were many hypocrites, they entered into Islam, and then they introduced ideas, heretical beliefs, like for example the Batiniyya, like for example, um, like we mentioned some of the groups, the Ittihadiyya. All of these were really disbelievers inside, they pretended to be Muslim, some of them pretended to be, you know, friends and allies of the Ahlul Bayt, they, they wore the, the mask of Shiism, and they brought you know, Greek philosophy and uh, the, the the religion of the Persians and the, you know, fire worship and many of these other things, they mixed them all together and they entered them into, into the Muslims, deliberately intending a misguidance. So Ibn Taymiyyah is saying that sometimes you have hypocrites and they will come and they will spread things. And if the Muslims remain silent, then this will lead to corruption of the book, the interpretation of the book and of the religion itself. Then there is another group of people. If they are not hypocrites, وَإِذَا كَانَ أَقْوَامٌ لَيْسُ مُنَافِقِينَ لَكِنَّهُمْ سَمَّعُونَ لِلْمُنَافِقِينَ This is now a group who are actually Muslims. But they give ear, they lend ear to the hypocrites. And what happens is, the issue becomes confusing to them because they listen to the statements of these hypocrites. And they believe their statements to be truth. To be true. And even though it is opposed to the book and the sunnah. Then these people who lend an ear to those hypocrites, they actually become callers to the innovations of those hypocrites. So therefore it is essential that the condition of these people, the ones who listen, is explained because the fitna, the the um, the tribulation through these people is even greater. Right? It's even greater than the hypocrites themselves. Why? Because these people who, who lend an ear to the hypocrites and they are confused and start believing some of their statements, these people actually have iman. They have iman. They have iman in their hearts. And because they have iman, we are obligated to have some degree of loyalty towards them. And when this is the situation, the Muslims are loyal to these people by virtue of their iman, and they have this confusion and they you know they, they acquire these statements of those hypocrites, then it's easier for them to enter the innovations of those hypocrites into and among the Muslimin that will corrupt their religion. So by way of example today we can give a very clear example. There are many hypocrites um, who are out there trying to push a uh, a fabricated, doctored, distorted, liberal version of Islam and some of them are outright hypocrites, very, very clean, clearly and apparently. Right? They're trying to push homosexuality, lesbianism, all this gender confusion nonsense, which is just mental illness. Right? Some of them are hypocrites trying to weaken and destroy the family values, the, 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 the greatness of the family in Islam. And then you have others, they're not hypocrites, but they have something of iman, but they listen this listen and listen and listen and maybe some affairs they get confused in. Then they start believing maybe, you know, maybe um, for whatever rationalization they make, I won't go into all of that. But there are people who basically think, oh maybe, well yes, 
and so these people now start becoming the the vehicle through which that virus is spread into uh, Muslim communities, not the outright hypocrites themselves. So the point that Ibn Taymiyyah is making here is that Islamically, all in the context of backbiting and speaking and refuting the falsehood and not remaining silent and so on and so forth, that there's different categories of people. There's the outright disbelievers who obviously their attack is very clear, the hypocrites who come and they enter things as a means of corrupting, and then there are those who give ear to the hypocrites, right? who might have something of iman with them. And so those people should be spoken of because they are the, are the most dangerous, right? because they have a standing and acceptance and have a loyalty uh, from, from the Muslims. So he says, وَقَدْ دَخَلُوا فِي بِدَعٍ مِنْ بِدَعِ الْمُنَافِكِينَ الَّتِي تُفْسِدُ الدِّينَ فَلَا بُدَّ مِنَ التَّحْذِيرِ مِنْ تِلْكَ الْبِدَعِ uh, so it is necessary to warn against those innovations even if this requires us to mention those people meaning by name and to specify them by name this is something absolutely uh, necessary similarly he says likewise it is obligatory to mention the condition of those who in their narrating they confuse the ahadith right they confuse words, they overturn words, or they ascribe the wrong statement to the wrong person, these people should be spoken against. And likewise, those who make mistakes in giving opinions and verdicts in fatawa, those should be spoken against. People giving wrong fatawa, they should not be allowed to continue because this brings corruption upon the religion. Likewise, those who err in uh, zuhud and ibadah, there are some people who exaggerate in abs- being abstemious from the world, right? They keep away from the world, and they then impose this on other people. This is this is wrong. And likewise, those who are in worship, even though in these affairs the people who make ijtihad, they are they are they would be they would be uh, forgiven. Uh, so he says so to explain statements and actions which the Qur'an and the Sunnah have indicated is wajib, and if there's any opposition to them, then again this is necessary to, to, explain, to, to, to explain those prayers to the people. So this is just one illustration to show how Islam has come with, if you like, you know, uh, self-preservation in a way that you do not find with any other religion. And this is from the signs of its completion and its perfection. Another aspect is, the fact that you see Ibn Taymiyyah has written uh, a lot about philosophy and logic, mantik and falsafa, and people came who tried to mix logic, Greek logic, with fiqh. This is what Al-Ghazali did. Al-Ghazali the Ash'ari, right? He brought in, basically, he basically claimed that it is not possible to understand Islamic fiqh and to avoid making mistakes until and unless you are versed in logic. Right? And then he brought this into fiqh. And then they began to enjoin upon people, you must learn logic first. And this is false, because the Sahaba never learned Greek logic. Right? Oh yes, there is sound reasoning, but sound reasoning is not found in just in, in, in Greek logic. Right? Sound reasoning is not restricted just to the principles of logic, right? But this is something that happened historically in the, in the Muslim nation. 
So you can see even, not just in beliefs and acts of worship, but even in the derivation of rulings itself, these affairs were entered into. And so, you know, there were scholars who, uh, and by way of this, what happens is the intellects become corrupted and the religion becomes corrupted uh, as well. And then he speaks also very briefly also about many of the things that were introduced by, by the Sufis of certain like, you know, clothing and behavior. And they led people to believe that, you know, uh, by way of this address and these codes and everything else, that this how signifies that a person is from the awliya of Allah, the, 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 the pious friends of Allah Azza wa Jal. And uh, these people likewise, they entered things that corrupted the minds and corrupted the hearts and corrupted the religion. So, that's the end of our discussion of, of, of giving examples to illustrate how the Sharia has come with preservation of Islam itself. Right, from all of these different roots and these different angles. And these should indicate to us the perfection of Islam. Uh, we'll finish very quickly. I'm going to summarize the second thing very quickly before we stop for the prayer. So the second thing now is preservation of life. Right? This, the religion was the first necessity. Second is the preservation of life. Hifdun nafs. And... Um, the preservation of life, I'm going to very quickly go through the rest of this because of shortage of time. And so Ibn Taymiyyah explains that after religion, the next greatest necessity is preservation of life. Life comes next. And the greatest affair in the world is to kill a soul without due cause. This is the greatest affair in the world. What is the greatest crime? It is to kill a soul without due cause. And what is the greatest affair in the religion? It is Al-Kufr. Right? So the greatest affair in terms of religion is Al-Kufr. And the greatest affair in the worldly affairs is to kill a person without due cause. This is why it is the greatest of the major sins. Why? Because it causes a corruption. And likewise, Ibn Taymiyyah says, Amrud the affair of blood is more grave and serious than the affair of wealth. And so we will see that in Islam the issue of preservation of life is of utmost importance. And we're going to give just a quick, few quick illustrations or examples. The first one will show you how Islam preserves life is the obligation of eating what is haram in a time of necessity, <coughs> in a time of darura. Right, so pay attention to that. We said, the obligation, wujub, the obligation of eating what is haram in a time of necessity. So again, a lengthy quote, I'm going to summarize the essence of what the quote is. Uh, Ibn Taymi says, sometimes a person can wrong himself, commit zulm against himself, by abandoning something that will be of benefit to him in a time when he's actually in need of it. Right? So he says, he basically is giving, giving an example of um, where basically a person would be allowed to eat pork or would be allowed to drink alcohol if it meant that his life was, if he was going to die. And if he did not do so, this would be a, 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 an actual a sin on his behalf. So Islam has allowed the consumption of what is haram in drink or food 
in order in order to preserve life why because life is the is the second greatest necessity after religion so this is clearly an indication of how the sharia has come and allowed certain things in fact it has obligated not allowed it has made wajib certain things in a time of absolute dire uh, necessity um Likewise, it has prohibited certain things which will lead, like acts of worship, that will lead to harm. So for example, when a person fasts and he's ill, and it will cause him more illness, the Sharia has not legislated that, that, that he must fast. Or likewise, when a person is ill and he has to make wudu, and that wudu with cold water might end up making him even more ill. Right, this is this is not allowed either. This would be wronging oneself. So on the one hand, it is allowed people to eat what is haram. On the other hand, it has either giving given a concession or prohibited a person from doing certain acts of worship if they will lead to what is harmful or even lead to death. Right. So this is the first point. I'm, I've just very quickly summarized it to show how the Sharia has come with the preservation of life to preserve your life. And it shows the perfection of the Sharia. The second I want to quickly summarize is a lengthy uh, quotation from Ibn Taymiyyah on this. The essence of this quotation is, he's asked a question about a person who is exaggerating in worship and fasting a great deal and reading a lot of uh, Quran. And this person has dependents. He has family with him. He has children. Right? And... Um, he is, you know, also he has issues with his own body of health issues and things like that. And he's in need of preserving his wealth. So what he does is, he's engaging in fasting, he's engaging in all, all these things, and they are weakening him and his body. Making him more ill, and likewise making his family even more dependent and, and in need. So, he's, he's asked, um, um, and this is like this is a youth. He's, he's he's a youthful person. It's not as if he doesn't have the ability. He has, right? But all these combined factors are coming together. His fasting, spending a lot of time reading the Quran, uh, doing a lot of uh, prayer, and all of this is is tiring him out, and it's leading to this scenario where basically it's now affecting his mind. He's having headaches, and he's not able to think straight, and even. To the degree that he's not able to, you know, speak straight. Basically, it's affecting his health now. And he says, this preoccupation he's involved in, um, you know, is it something that Allah is pleased with this person? Is Allah pleased with this person? And him preserving his, you know, uh, so the answer, or, or, or is his persistence in these affairs, is it something that brings about the anger of Allah? And is it something by which he's throwing himself to destruction? So Ibn Taymiyyah, he answers this uh, question, a very, very nice question. And he says, that which is loved and legislated, which Allah loves, and which is loved, beloved to Allah and His Messenger, is al-iqtisad fil-ibadah. To be moderate. To be balanced in worship. And when this worship is such that it leads him to harm, then, um, then, 
uh, and it leads him to, to basically some harm, and it prevents him from doing that which is wajib, then it is haram upon him to do so. So for example, to fast on a day when it's going to make him weak and unable to earn a living. Right? So if he chooses, I'm going to fast today, but he should be going out and making, you know, to earning, the obligatory earning to feed his family. Or if, if it's going to affect his mind, or it's going to affect his ability to understand in a way which is wajib, and so on and so forth, then this is something that it is, you know, uh, that he should not do. Because uh, either it leads him to something which is haram, or it leads him to something which is makruh. Right? And the ruling is the same upon that action. So he says, then he gives the example, that man who said, that I'm going to fast every other day. Right? This would harm him, his body, his aql, and the Prophet you know, prohibited him from, from doing that. And uh, then he goes on to discuss, you know, more and more things. Um, I'll finish with the end statement where he says, It is obligatory. فَيَنْبَغِي لِلْمُؤْمِنْ أَنْ يُفَرِّقَ بَيْنَ مَا نَحَ اللَّهُ عَنْهُ مِنْ قَسْتِ الْإِنسَانِ فِي قَتْلِ نَفْسِهِ أو, uh, Basically he's saying a person should distinguish between He gave the example of a man who became a Muslim and he wanted to fight jihad and die whilst fighting jihad. Right? So he threw himself into the enemy. Ibn Taymiyyah is saying, look, this situation is different from the other situation we are discussing, of the man who's just engaged in lots of worship, harming his body, not you know earning a living and so on and so forth, you're making a distinction between the, between those two people, because um, we should distinguish between the two scenarios, and he gives the reason or the explanation why I won't really go into it because of shortage of time. Anyway, the point being, look at how the Sharia, look at how when a man is preoccupied in worship and voluntary acts which are harming his body. And harming his mind and not allowing him to fulfill his obligations to his family, this is considered to be unlawful in Islam. Right? Uh, and because this is, is causing destruction to oneself and Islam did not come with that. So this is another angle of the perfection of the Sharia in that it guarantees and it preserves people's lives from all these different uh, angles. And so this is all from the angle Minjanib al-Wujud, as we discussed before. We'll finish very quickly um, how Islam preserves life uh, by by making sure that it does not cease to exist. This is clear, clearly from the angle of the prohibition of murder, the prohibition of killing another person, and the obligation of uh, the law of retribution, Qisas, the law of retribution. Right. So uh, he speaks about that very quickly, very briefly. Um, and he mentions how, for example, those who wage war, those who are the highway robbers, those who cut off the roads and the paths, who make people scared to travel because they rob people and they kill people, right? So all of these people, uh, there's a specific uh, ruling uh, in Islam for them. They are to be fought, and if they are captured, they are to be killed, and so on and so forth. All of this is from the angle of the preservation of life, and then he goes on to mention some other statements, and we'll, we'll conclude with that, inshallah ta'ala. So, what we've done here then, is we've we've brought some statements from Ibn Taymiyyah, showing how the Sharia, it uh, guarantees preservation of the religion, guarantees pre- preservation of the soul, of life, 
And likewise, he goes on, we don't, didn't have time to go through these other statements, but also he goes through the other necessities of wealth and nasal of lineage and so on and so forth. So this was um, really to end our series and hopefully from this series it should have opened our eyes and made us realize the great wisdoms in the legislation of Allah Azawajal. Allah Azawajal, He is Al-Hakam, the judge. He is Al-Adal, the one who is the most uh, the most just. And He is Ar-Rahim, Ar-Rahman, the most merciful. And His law emanates from these, from these attributes. So anyone who comes and, and attacks the law and attacks, you know, uh, as, as we find is commonplace today amongst the non-Muslims, amongst the apostates and the people like that, then we don't treat, we, do, we do not treat this as a light as a light matter. This is uh, this is a, a, a revilement upon Allah and His Messenger, and so tackling these affairs requires that we must have understanding of this topic, that we must understand uh, the Islamic Sharia and how it you know what 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 are the aims of law, what 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 should law try to achieve? There are the necessities, there are the needs, there are the perfections. Right, and all of this will give us a better understanding, inshallah ta'ala, and uh, allow us to approach these attacks and these objections and these, this abuse that come from these, the, 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 the kuffar and the munafiqeen. Now, without, you know, being, um, scared or cowardly or just speaking firmly with knowledge and to defend this, 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 this law. So this is really, this, this series of lectures was just really a, a stepping stone or an opening into this topic, and I hope that maybe some of the other uh, uh, students of knowledge uh, and the sheikhs in this country that they also uh, perhaps you know uh, uh, expand on this even further uh, for the benefit of the uh, of the Muslims because it is a tremendous topic and it will give Muslims uh, uh, firm grounding and also have pride and love for you know these commands and these prohibitions. And, uh, you know, uh, bring greater adherence. So with that, we conclude this series. And, uh, uh, alhamdulillahi